sometimes I, uh, if we uh, start down a spiritual journey, uh, we can uh, kind of lose perceptions of where we're going and why we're doing what we're doing. The uh, scenery can look so startling and so fascinating, so interesting that we sometimes lose the sense of where the journey is taking us. And so from time to time, I like to back us up here and make sure that we are uh, very clear upon what and why the uh, uh, teachings are going the way they're going and the direction they are going in. And if you, th if you uh, look at the problem as simply an overinvestment of energy, of our psychic energy into the forms and appearances of the world, so that we've made more out of those forms and appearances than, uh, than their nature, and the mind imparts a value to them and gives them a, an exaggerated importance in our life, then mostly what we do is that we walk kind of leaning forward into those forms and inserting a whole meaning and purpose that those forms themselves uh, don't intrinsically have. Uh, but we stay convinced that they, the forms do have that meaning by never examining completely our relationship with those forms, just chasing after them in sort of a haphazard way keeps us very busily seeking their source of contentment. Whatever contentment they give us is a, actually been invested by our own mind, but we don't see that. We think it's the object that gives it to us. We say, for instance, uh, I love you, never realizing that the love we have has, is self-engendered and, and given to that person invested in that person, uh, we think that the person, him or herself, holds that love. So in many, many different ways, in many different expressions, we give our mind over to the reality and then seek the reality uh, in, in forms that allow us to reconnect with our own mind. Now, what almost all spiritual traditions that I'm aware of do is to try to, to try to break that pattern, is to show us that the forms that we have invested in aren't uh, dependable, aren't reliable. They don't hold the satisfaction that we concede to them. And it does that in a variety of ways. In Buddhism, it does that by showing us that they're impermanent, that they don't last. That how can you invest so heavily into any object into any relationship, into anything other, when it's in a constant state of flux and change and in movement. And therefore, as we examine the reality, not the preconceived notion of what those things mean to us, but the reality of what those objects are, by bringing our attention to bear upon them without the thought that gives them the somethingness that we seek, so in the quiet of our observation, we begin to see what they really are, rather than what we want them to be through the thoughts that we uh, impose upon them. And so as we do that, we begin to see, yes, in fact, they're not worth, they're not reliable, they're not dependable. There's no guarantee. 
And then what happens there is a very important, it, the psychic energy that we have given or invested into the forms comes back. Now when that energy comes back, it comes back as a different expression. In, when we were leaning, it came into the form of attachment. It was invested in the object. And how that was, the energy was created was in terms of its identifying that particular form and holding that particular form to that identification and investing in the mind, with the mind, all of the glamour and comfort that we give to that object. And that, so the energy flows out. Now when we divest, we no longer see that the forms offer us that sense of completion, satisfaction, and contentment that we seek. The conservation of energy, which all systems have to have, that energy doesn't go away, it comes back. It comes back. It comes back. And what it comes back as is not an attached energy or a leaning energy, but presence, awareness, a resting energy, energy at rest, an authentic energy that hasn't been forced to impart uh, an exaggerated significance to anything. It comes back and shows us. It just rests. But it, for the first time, there's a sense of it because as long as we were leaning towards the object, the object held that uh, appeal. And once we stop that, then the presence itself comes back and it's, and it's, it's, it's completed. It feels complete. It feels total. Now, what we have to do is be very careful because many of us are very good at looking at objects and seeing that objects are not as the objects and experiences in our life are changing that we're very good at that we can see that wherever we place our attention things are changing what we're not so good at but see that's only half that's only half the equation the other half of the equation is to see that the object the subject is itself being created along with the object so that the subject isn't what I thought it was either. Now that's where we prefer not to go. I will concede the point that old age, death and dying, transition, change, flux, impermanence is out there. But, and I'm even willing to concede that everywhere I look in my own physical body and in my mind contains the same characteristic. It's changing, it's not stable, it's not solid, it's in constant flux, but somehow or other the sense of I escapes that scrutiny. I don't know, it's like a very clever shadow that just keeps reforming itself and observing along with the observation, paralleling the observation and saying yes, all things change and everything is impermanent and I shouldn't invest while it holds itself in a very secure and isolated and permanent position in relationship to the impermanence that it sees. Now, and we could have gone through the body in the first, in the first uh, foundation, and 
seeing that the body was in various forms of decay and change, etc. We could have also brought that intentionality and observation to feelings, this pleasant and unpleasant quality and neutral quality of what the mind imparts to experience, and seeing that although at one point it invests pleasure, after a while that may well change and it invests an unpleasant experience into the thing that once was pleasant and or a neutral investment. And so that even that has an unsured quality to it. And it's this third, this third uh, foundation that is supposed to now bring everything into the middle. So that all of it, everything, there's no holding back now. There's nothing left unseen that we can allow to escape the truth of, of the uh, quality of existence. And so uh, I really believe when the Buddha then moved his attention to the foundation of the mind, he was really talking about what the mind, what we think we are within the mind. And he did this in a very concise language because he probably realized that this wasn't going to survive uh, in, in an elaborative form. He better make it so that it could be flushed out at some points along the way. And so he just gave us a series of verses which covers virtually every mind state and says, discern this, discern its opposite, discern this. And this. You look at that and you think, OK, well, I have a lot of work to do and just keeping myself busy discerning whatever it is the mind brings up. But that's not what I believe is the implied dharma in that. The implied dharma in that is that there's nothing else in there but the states of mind. That he has done away with us. And he says, in a, in a sense, he doesn't say, now also notice the entity that's arising. You know, the entity are, the entity is those states of mind as they're arising. He doesn't separate those two out in any kind of way. Now, so, so that I'm, I'm not trying to be clever in repeating this principle every time I sit down with you. I'm trying to show us that unless we have that direction, unless we have that course, the spiritual journey can get very distorted very quickly by just examining experiences to hold a particular characteristic but never examining oneself within those same characteristics, by never throwing oneself into the middle of that examination room. And that two very different forms and expressions of practice come out of each of those styles. The one where I am sort of in the watching position as I bring forth experiences that the watcher is having, examining and looking at the characteristics that the, that the experiences are occurring within the watcher's examination, but never really turning the gaze back to the watcher itself to say, what is this thing? What is this that's watching? And the, the practice that unfolds from that state of permanence watching impermanence is a kind of a immutable sense within ourselves that we can develop an unperturbed sense of self, which we usually call things like equanimity, 
uh, that doesn't have to be noticed, that doesn't have to be thrown into the mix, that, that kind of exists in a, in a flat state of unemotionality. That's one form it can take. The other form it can take is that you keep asserting the need of the will to change and manipulate and form life to its making, never realizing that that's the very mechanism for the suffering itself. That's the very way that suffering is caused, through the will's assertion of control and power. But as long as we have a permanent entity in there that it's not examining, the uh, control and power of that unexamined entity can remains intact as well. And it throws us off. It just starts steering the whole course off, off the road. And so it's helpful sometimes for us to step back a little bit and say, okay, what is it that I'm afraid of here? Why is it that I won't examine this more subtle aspect of practice? Why is it that I kind of leave it out? Well, one, of course, it is subtle. And until we, our minds get very stable and, uh, and uh, steady, is a very difficult experience to see this experience of self. So part of it is a lack of training, fair enough. But part of it is that we are afraid. We're afraid for our belief systems. We're afraid that this final piece could radically shake, shake the apple cart and leave nothing but an empty cart. And we're not so sure we want to venture that way. We want to appear to be spiritual. We want to do our spiritual work, but we want ourselves intact, a little bit like having our cake and eating it too. And herein lies the basic resistance to Dharma. The Dharma will disturb our comfort. It will, it has to. If we are really willing to apply ourselves uh, to, to, wor to where it's pointing, there will be disturbance. We can't maintain a sense of abiding comfort when we are being asked to examine the very assumptions on which that comfort is based. And uh, any uh, authentic spiritual practice must also threaten our will, our sense of volition, our sense of control, our sense of effort. And this is also sacrosanct for many of us. It's the only thing we've got going for ourselves. And yet this underlying principle that is being espoused in this third foundation is just the opposite of will and control. When there is just this discernment and that discernment, and there's no one in there other than a more discernment, the sense of self is itself being discerned as a mental state so that the mind is one container of all the experiences we have, including the sense of self. And so the sense of self is a mental experience, not something that's outside having a mental experience, but part of that mental phenomena itself. Now, if you just take yourself from time to time with that understanding, you go, just any time that you're sitting, just throw yourself in the middle of that watching so that the watching is 360 rather than coming from a point of reference of a person watching. And you begin to, it all gets very different inside there. It, it no longer is cantankerous. It's no longer in contention. It's no longer side-taking. It's no longer judgmental. And you begin to see where the, inf 
instructions were derived. The instructions were derived from that state in which the whole of the mind was the given, was the authentic given. It wasn't instructions for the person not to be judgmental about what he or she sees when looking at the mind. It's impossible for the person not to be judgmental because the person is an embodiment of the resistance, a mental resistance to what it is that's occurring in other areas of the mind. And so you'll find of, of a, a lingering frustration in your practice when you try non, be, to be non-judgmental but not looking at the person <coughs> who is assuming that task. Is this making sense? Okay. <clears throat> and so once we allow ourselves to be a part of the very fabric of the consciousness of the mind itself rather than separated from us this really does change everything because this is in fact the fact the authentic fact of what and who this organism is or is not and but the implications of that are considerable really because now what is the sense of me a mental phenomenon going to do about something that I in quotes don't like that's happening experientially well I have one of two choices and again you can see the roads split apart in vast separation depending upon which choice I choose I can go back into the sense of me being permanent and do something about the mind try to control it or maintain it or suppress it or get rid of it or I can do what what else is that? what's the other road what's the other branch the other branch is that I do nothing I do nothing now look at all the ways that this Buddhism is taught and you hear 99% of the instructions going down the left-hand branch of you doing something about and 1% and that's given some just to claim 1% is that you do nothing because nothing rubs us the wrong way it feels like that's just conceding our power, conceding our point of reference. It's conceding too much. And I still have a problem with the mind, and I'm still going to do something about it as long as I have a problem. So we get torn between these two branches. One gives us a sense of fulfillment as a person, spiritual person in definition, a spiritual person doing something about a cantankerous part of the mind that we're trying to tame. And it gives us, and we can sometimes manipulate or foster or embellish or contend or do something and it smooths out a little bit and we think okay we're on our way here we're on our way and it gives us you know and then we can talk spiritually with one another and we can have this have this sense of being on top of the mind hmm? or you can be humble <laughs> you can be powerless doesn't sound very inviting does it you can do nothing but doing nothing, you can't just do nothing and, be, and still claim yourself to be a person <clears throat> because then you're just 
philosophically conceding the point but not realizing the point. That's no good. But you might as well do something if you have a philosophical, if you're not seeing it, if you're not realizing. But to actually bring this sense of the mind into, into awareness so that we see the sense of self as part of the mind, that we begin to get a sense of the sense of self as part of the mind, then genuinely our effort is taken away from us. It takes now, whatever you're doing, you're doing fine. Okay, I'm not trying to speed you along or push you along in whatever, wherever you are in practice because what I just went through is an evolution of understanding. And each of us have a reference either <clears throat> more towards the sense that I am, I, I, I don't know who I am, but I have a lot of ability to change my environment and change my uh, mental states and mental conditions. And the evolution starts there to the point where there is no choice at all. You have no choice at all to do anything about the mind. None. Zero. And so at that point, you become completely undivided in the mind. <clears throat> now, why is that important? Because when the mind is no longer divided against itself, and it's wanting or it's not wanting, that's how it divides out. I spent last talk talking about how the mind divides itself out in terms of grasping, in terms of desiring. I'm going to spend much of the rest of the time now talking about how the mind divides out in its opposite, in resistance, in aversion. Either way, it divides itself out because it takes itself to be something that it intrinsically is not. So let's look at how the mind does that, how the mind divides itself out in terms of aversion. <clears throat> Remembering that, it's very important to remember where all of this is coming from. You see, there's no outside truth in anything we see. We invest that truth through the mind. That is, the mind has, invests, say, a fear response or a fear element into a particular experience or object or person that comes into its vision. That investment came from something being unpleasant and maybe persistently unpleasant and then a fear response came in which I will talk about in the next talk about fear but in some way it was abhorrent to the mind that perhaps the intensity of unpleasantness, or perhaps, I don't know, whatever. And we made something. We, we built, we tried to build a distance between ourselves and that unpleasant object. We tried to create a distance, some fact of separation, some way of creating a divide between ourselves and that unpleasantness. And the only way we can do that, since the mind, I mean, just listen to it from the underlying principle. Since the mind can't separate itself out literally and go from, to the west coast and leave the unpleasantness on the east coast, it can't do that physically. There's only one place it can go. It can go into thought. It can think itself, repress itself away from it. It can think a reality in which that is not a part of it. And that's what it does. 
it goes, it sees the problem, and very cleverly, it says, I gotta get out of here. And so, it realizes, because of its, where it is, that the only thing it can do is to think its way out of this thing. And that's good enough, because that gets me a lot of distance in imagination. Even though the thing is still there, it feels as if I've placed a lot of distance between. Really what's created, what's happened, is that I've, I've created more tension between myself and that other thing by taking an imaginary leap away from it. And the farther I go in my imagination, the more tension, the more uh, resistance there is between myself and that particular experience. And so as it goes out and tries to find a life free of this particular difficulty, <clears throat> the difficulty doesn't go away. Difficulty may get suppressed, which is a form of denial, but if the imagination and the thought is strong enough, it can seal off a boundary between it and the experience. It can claim it doesn't have it. It can claim, no, it's not happening, like a stubborn child, and completely turn itself into a different representation. And many of us have done that to part of our psyches. We have simply turned away from part of ourselves or from facts which don't fit our particular point, purpose, and mission in life, like climate change. Doesn't fit. Just turn away. Pretend it doesn't do it. It's not happening. I can show you scientists that say it's not. One. <laughs> who happens to work for Shell Oil, but never mind. <laughs> I'll dig every time on that one. So we just will not face the facts as given. We simply won't do it. We want something different. And what's beautiful now is that we can begin to own that. We can begin to see that. We can begin to see that we don't get out of anything. We just create a calamity all along the way through that denial, through that, through that dive away from, that prolonged dive, that soaring away from the problem at hand because we refuse to acknowledge the problem at hand. We refuse to admit the problem at hand. We refuse to just see it. Now, you, it also becomes obvious how this works with the underlying principle. That <clears throat> since the mind is in fact undivided in its nature, that I can't get out of anything. I can't do, I can't escape it. And there's, to know that, to know that, there's no escaping here. And if you try, the, you just create tension, pain, and suffering for yourself and probably many people around you in your attempt to do so. And you think, okay, damn, I have to face this fact. I have to face it. I have to face I don't get out of anything here. And so, it's, it, and when I don't, and, and when I'm absolutely facing it, 
what happens is that what I thought I feared so much of it leaves it. I no longer have the fear of it. The fear leaves it because the fear was in the resistance of having it, to con having it continue. Now that I'm no longer fearing its continuance, I'm willing just to open myself to it. The fear of it leaves it. The fear was invested from one part of the mind to the other part. It didn't intrinsically hold fear. The mind gave it fear. And therefore, when the mind isn't willing to run from the fear it gave it, then that fear is, is dissipated. Now, here's something very, just follow this, please. Why anything is what it is is because we have made it to be so. We have invested a desire or fear into it which makes nothing something. As soon as we're afraid of something, just in exactly reverse conditions as when we desired something, that feeling tone was followed by a whole story associated with words and a narrative and a history with that, and suddenly that's what made it something. Not that it had anything intrinsically there before, it was infested with the story that we gave it from our history of so many occasions where this person did this to me or whatever. And now when that person, place, thing, event, experience shows up again, the history comes with it and the story embodies that. And that's what makes it something. What we're doing spiritually is making something nothing because we have spent our lives making nothing something. I know this is like the worst riddle you could ever... <laughs> but it's absolutely the truth. And if you, just, if you just look at this thing and just say, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of threat here. I have to, in reverse order, I have to undo all the ways that I have denied the world being. I have to go back because we have a lot of them lined up. It's the way it works is that we have made the world into what we've made it into and then we pursue it. And when we stop pursuing it, we have to divest the energy of what we have made it into. We have to drop it. We have to reclaim it. We have to be accountable to what we have given the world to make it what we have invested in it. That's how we become, that's where the energy comes back into presence, comes back into awareness. That's how it returns to us as wholeness, as zero. It returns to us because it's all, when we talk about unity, when we talk about oneness, when we talk about all things being together, it's not like beads on a string. It's like zero. It's zero. Where nothing is made of, anything from. But the whole, what you get is the entire, you get the entire wholeness of consciousness. The entire consciousness.
You get the whole thing. You don't get a piecemeal approach. You don't get part of it weighing in in the contention and resistance and, and thought and investment and the fear and the desire and the wanting and the hating and the aversion. You don't get all that. All of that energy comes back settled. All the energy comes back, comes back, settled. As whole. As whole. So we take, we make, we allow that something to come back to nothing. See, when we're looking at this third foundation, we're looking at how the mind has created two. How has it done this? How is it when I look out? It's not just looking at the mind and saying, oh, now I'm feeling joy, now I'm feeling sorrow, now I'm feeling this, now I'm feeling that. That doesn't really do anything. It just allows you to know what you're feeling, which is good. But what is, the, what is happening up here that makes it seem as if this world that I have taken to be in its multiplicity, in its isolation, in my separation, where does that come from? What is happening up there? This is an invitation to explore that, to know that, to put an end to it, to come to rest, to come to zero. And as I mentioned, for some of you, you're just starting, you know, and it's like, this is too much. Well, then just go and work at the condition in the way that feels valid to you. But don't forget the direction this thing takes. And that's the point, is that this is not too soon to tell anyone, even the most basic beginner, this is the direction that spirituality takes. Or believe me, you will find a thousand different directions that you'll like to take instead of this one. And you'll do so. But all spirituality, not Buddhism, Hinduism, it's, this is the direction that it takes. So when we are afraid of something, we bypass the whole because we want to put distance between ourselves and that which the oppressor. So we create the distance in terms of thought. And as we create the distance in terms of thought, thought further fractures things. That's what thought does. Words separate things into individual things. That's what a word does. And so the more words we bring to our life, the more individual things there are in our life and the more separate everything is and the more I can then navigate that separation so that I don't ever have to touch the things I don't like and I can hang around the things I do because the words tell me because of the memory and the narrative and the story I have associated with each word it tells me where to know, navigate towards and where to navigate away isn't that amazing this is a house we've built.
So we can't decide in the truth of the mind, you can't decide anything from it. You can't decide you're not going to be angry. Who's deciding what? One part of the mind that doesn't, that doesn't, that senses unpleasantness and anger pulls back in fear of anger and creates a schism between itself and anger. That's no way to do it. That just creates rage and ultimately violence. So what does a sane person do? There's only one direction that this can take towards sanity, right? And that's understanding. Understanding the willingness to cross the boundary, to sit down across from the anger, so to speak, although there isn't a sitting down because there's only one thing, but just in terms of how it feels within our our practice, it, some, it feels like we're not moving in relationship to the anger, we're just not going to turn from it. And we're going to let it do whatever it does and burn itself out within that cauldron of unity. And as it does so, a byproduct of that clear observation and embrace is understanding, understanding what it is. And as we understand what it is, we understand it to be how to say it, not something we need to fear. We understand it back to zero. Do something with it, move one iota in relationship to it, one flinch. You've got a whole story about it and you're off. Now you're, trying, now you're one, two things, you and the anger, and you're doing everything you can to get over your anger. And everything you do creates more of it being something that you're afraid of. Because if the last thing I'm going to do with this is do nothing, which would create make it zero, but then if I do nothing to it, I'm vulnerable to it, and therefore I will be destroyed, so I'll keep my resistance up, and in so doing, continue to make it something and figure out a way to solve this problem. Whew! <laughs> that was hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly what it does. That's what, so we get the anger and we think, okay, I'll wait it out. You see, you can, there's no strategy that the mind doesn't know. You're, you're essentially sharing your strategic plan with your enemy. <laughs> I mean, there's only one map here. <laughs> Everybody's looking over the same shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rodney, you try that. <laughs> and so there's just, there's no way that we can outsmart it. Because it is us. And so we have to concede the point that it isn't us. By just being quiet with it. Now we're beginning to get a sense of where this goes. Don't ever, ever forget that. I say this for your own sake. To forget it is to lose your way. I don't, you can go journey as much as you want into all the different forms and skillful ways to treat and hold and deal with anger. 
But never forget this. You're not going to ever solve it unless you're still with it. That's how you're going to solve it. Because what happens is that in that stillness, you're willing to understand it. It comes to you, imparts its what it really is, which is nothing. What is it? I mean, if it's something, please show it to me. I mean, there's nothing up here. It's, what's so amazing is that when you look up there, it's just wisps of smoke. It's like, it's nothing. It's like cloud shapes or something. I don't know. It's not even that. It's even lighter than cloud. And somehow we make it into something, but it's so clear when you sit down, there's nothing in there. It's just vacuum. Now that's really amazing. That we can have that experience, which every one of us has who's ever sat with their mind, and still recoil in horror when something arises from our mind. That's real insanity. We can't get out of our suffering either. And this is perhaps the deepest fix of them all because we set off on this journey to put a lot of distance between ourselves and our suffering. But the underlining principle says to us, you can't get out of your suffering. You see, it's like a cheat sheet that you can always have beside you. Okay, let's see what the underlining principle says. I can't get out of my suffering. Well, that cuts a lot of, <laughs> cuts through a lot of time. Let me just take my cheat sheet out. Oh, God. Right? Why can't we get out of our suffering? Because the getting out of your suffering is what causes the suffering. And the doing nothing. And that, you see, that's where egoically the difficult, where the real rub is, is that it makes us vulnerable. It doesn't give us a sense of protection. It doesn't give me something to do about my suffering. And the whole sense of me as an accomplished being, meditator, person, is that I have skills. I have a learning set of skills, and I can bring forth those skills to remedy a situation like suffering. But if I don't have, if you're taking those away from me, it's making me impotent. I'm, I have nothing to offer this thing. See, that's the rawness that's necessary for understanding. If you really want to understand something or someone, you put nothing, you put no image between you and the person because the image maintains a certain presentation that doesn't allow a complete meeting, doesn't it? But if you put nothing, which is humility, really, I mean, like all those different words, like susceptible and vulnerable and impotent, and all really just mean humility. That's all, it all comes down to one word. In humility, in humility, now my heart 
see, there's a different, there's a different way now that I move. I'm not moving according to conscious thought or escapism. I'm moving to come back together. I'm moving to connect. I'm moving to understand the world, to bring it back so that it's understandable. Not intellectually understandable, but integratively understandable. So that it, un that it comes back into being. Comes back into being. Not intellectually understandable. Many of you have an intellectual understanding. How, what has it done for you? And I don't mean to discard that as being completely useless, but in spirituality it is. And this is very simple. It's very simple. And you can also say, well, I'd like it a little more complex. Why? Because you could increase your skill set. And you could go out and show people how to do it. Like I do. <laughs> but this doesn't give you a skill set. And it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And that's the way it should. We should be willing to feel a little bit uncomfortable in that. Because it means that we're moving in a wise direction towards the heart, towards the true resolution of spirit, towards complete contentment. Okay, all, thank you. So maybe we can just sit for a minute or two. See, so as we sit, I always like to, if I could get inside your head, you wouldn't want me in there, believe me, but <laughs> I would just say, okay, just, just back off. Back off what's ever there. Back off what's ever in there. Be the space through which it moves. Don't be an object for, that it has to surmount or move around. Be the space from which it moves, through which it moves. And there'll be no contention whatsoever. Space doesn't create contention. And yet space filters through every aspect. There's no opaque piece in there because all of it is space. Space recognizes itself. Everything was made from space, became something from space, from nothing. It's all of one essence, said the Buddha. All things have the same essence. Okay. If there are any questions or comments anyone might have, we will certainly. Yes.
Yes. Yes, yes, good. And um, it's pretty cool until um, when I was thinking of that it wasn't something important and that's what it takes. And then the thought, or the experience, not just the thought, came over with I'm a cop. And not that I know. No, no, I understand. Yes, exactly. Yes. Because it didn't, it felt like nothing. Yes, yes. And immediately I backed off. Yes. No, absolutely. A very, very nice meditation experience, insight. Uh, and she said that she was had a cup of something and she realized that it wasn't a cup, it was the space that was really the essence of the cup and also the essence of herself was space. And when she had that thought, there was an enormous fear uh, that backed her off from that perception and brought her right back into form in which she was very filled at that point, no longer the empty emptiness. Okay, so that you can expect, and I've, I've spoken about that um, other times, is that egoically, when the ego, ego gets pushed, it pushes back with fear, which is why the next talk I give in two weeks will be on fear, because I think it's a very important follow-up to this series because it's, it's really the trump card the ego plays to bring you back into form. And so you shouldn't be dissuaded from the fact that you are afraid. In fact, it, may, it should give you some sense that you're on the right track. But it might say, it might also give you a forewarning that it's not going to be an easy track to be on, that the ego isn't going to roll over and play dead. It's going to start, you know, putting up objections to the way you're moving. Okay, so the most important thing at that point is to say, okay, come what may, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to come to the end of this. I'm going to follow this through. And from that resolution, it's very interesting. Fear, spiritual fear, I'm not necessarily talking about psychological fears. Psychological fears need a more accompanying approach. But spiritual fears begin to dissolve from that resolution. They, it, it, the ego gets a sense that you mean what you say, and that it doesn't. It may try a little bit of fear, but you're going to you're going to persist, and it doesn't come back in the same way from that resolution. The, what it wants from you, the egoically, what it wants from you is to turn back around and to become be the person that it is most familiar with, which is a full person, not an empty person. Okay? And so one of the ways to do that is to think, okay, what, what were the implications of what I saw? I just saw emptiness. I just saw myself being empty. Uh, the mind has made emptiness into nothing. I don't know that's true. I don't know that's true at all. So I'm not going to believe what the scenario that feel, fear builds on. Fear is going to say, if you keep going, you'll become empty and nothing. Or It has some logic in the course of time. It says, if you continue on this path, this will be the outcome. You'll be nothing. And nothing scares the hell out of anyone, and it should, because that's not what we become. We become presence. 
which is not something of form, so that's why it's called empty, but is very full of something else. And therefore, the, the fear can't realize that. Presence is not an uncomfortable state. It's not a state of absence. It's a state of fullness. It's authentic. Everything else was an add-on. And as we get a sense of this from time to time in different ways, it starts moving us forward and the fear no longer has the logic or the power in its logic to dissuade us anymore. So just continue forth, say, okay, I'm still coming, fear or not, I'm still going, and just keep, keep when the next time you start that thought of, oh, look at that emptiness, just keep going, just keep playing it out. Okay, well, I'm also empty. Let's see if the fear comes. Nope, didn't come this time. Oh, that's interesting. Just play with it as a play thing rather than as something I have to take to be so serious. Thank you for the question. Yes. Uh, optimism and pessimism and somethingness and nothingness. Not really. I would say optimism and pessimism is much more associated with the feeling tone that you give something and then the thoughts that, are, that come around in terms of the story of that feeling. So someone who has a particular, particular conditioning can look at a situation and be pessimistic, have an unpleasant feeling tone, and then build a whole story of how this is going to fail. Another person who has different conditioning and have a very different relationship to that same set of events and build a whole story of positive story around that. So that's just an, an, a different course than narrative can take. And a narrative, the, the interestingly enough, as many people that are in this room, that's how many, di or many people are on the planet, that's how many different expressions the narrative can take. It's endless. There are a hundred billion neurons with a thousand dendrites, connections to each neuron. That's how many different expressions at any time that the, the thing can take. Yes? Right, right. But those two don't feel similar. I feel like I could get deeper in one if the other one, I could bring it together. Um, I, you know, we, I mean, we, we um, 
I said, it depends on what you mean by death. Death is you know, the, the physical body, but if the death of the ego, the death of separation, the death of, it's a kind of death in the sense it's the death of what I've known life to be, how it, I have made it serve me from my own investments in it. When you stop, when we stop separating ourselves out and holding life in that disadvantaged way, it springs to life. And everything springs to life. Everything springs, the center springs to life as well as all the, the everything springs to life. It's not me being alive and everything's dead. It's everything springs to life. Everything is conscious. And one thought about one's state within that consciousness immediately separates you out so that you're the only thing alive to be seen. And so the willingness to abide in stillness, in which there are no edges to stillness, and therefore there is no separation between where I exist and where the next thing begins, is, all the boundaries vanish in that. And that's, that's as close as I can talk about it. And I thank you for your attention. And next week we'll have a discussion on this topic. I really encourage people to come to those discussions where so much of this gets flushed out and realized in a more dynamic activity because wise action is really the key for much of the integration of what we speak about here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.